If you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We are walking our way through John's Gospel. Last week we took a detailed look at probably the most well-known, the most popular verse in Scripture, John 3.16. Today we'll pick up at verse 17, and and I'd like to spend some time talking and sharing some insights on verses 17 and 18 in John's Gospel. I told you before, I'm, I feel like there's no urgency to rush through this. There could be Sunday mornings we'll actually chop out a, a, a chapter at a time. Then there'll be others where, I don't know, we'll do a paragraph, maybe just a few verses. Maybe some Sundays we'll, we'll focus on one word. I'm really going to spend the, the most of my time focusing on one word today out of verses 17 and 18 in John chapter 3. So, just to read in the sense of uh, context of the verse, um, if you're following along, I'm going to read from verses 16 uh, through verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into darkness, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So, Father, I pray that you would use even me to share your word in such a way that it would be life-giving to your people. Lord, let your word have its, let the truth of your word have its full impact on us. Set us free by that truth, Lord. Lead us closer to you. Make us more like you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? So I really do want to focus primarily on one word today with today's message, and, and it's the word condemnation. Ooh. Everybody get warm fuzzies with the word condemnation? <laughs> I don't get any warm fuzzies on that. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the, condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus, boy, that's good news. If I'm going to talk about condemn, that's the context that I want to talk about condemnation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's good news. Jesus came to rescue and not to condemn. I want to say that to you again and again and again. Jesus came to rescue, not to condemn. It's so frustrating. It's so very disappointing. As I prepared this week, I read commentary after commentary after commentary, on these verses that began with the basis that God condemns humanity. I'm like, guys, are we reading the same book? Do we read the same gospel? They, they, they approach it from, from a position of pro-condemnation as opposed to anti-condemnation. And I don't think they're alone. I think as people, when we consider God, we have a filter. Maybe we have multiple filters. We've been indoctrinated. We've been deceived. We've been lied to, in my humble opinion, concerning the heart 
and the nature of our God. All too many of us view God, view God as an angry judge, eager to exact punishment. Too many of us have an Old Covenant, an Old Testament image of God. We read the, the interaction between God and humanity in the Old Testament, and we apply it to the New Testament. Guys, it's a new day. Things have changed. Jesus was a game changer, a profound game changer. The old has passed away, the new has come. Hebrews tells us uh, unequivocally that the old covenant was replaced by the new covenant. He takes away the first to establish the second. He takes away the first covenant, a lesser covenant, a, a covenant that was not as good, and he replaces it with a new covenant. That's better. That supersedes. That's, it's a better deal. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. Too many of us see God as an angry judge, eager to exact judgment. Yet in his own words, Jesus says in verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Guys, do yourself a favor. If anybody, does anybody still carry Bibles and underline them? <laughs> do we do that anymore? Anybody actually have a Bible with you today? Underline that verse. Does anybody still memorize scripture? Memorize verse 17. All of you know verse 16. Memorize verse 17. Remember this. Jesus came to rescue, not to condemn. And this is not a new problem. This misconception, this, this deception of how we view God, we've struggled with this, with this problem from the very beginning. From the very beginning of the church. It's not a modern day problem. St. Paul had to address it in the early church. He begins chapter 8 of his letter to the Romans with this verse. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to, but to save it. And St. Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I know, I see a lot of good news in both those verses. And, uh, and then, <clears throat> so that's his opening salvo in chapter 8, St. Paul. He ends the chapter with just this profound declaration. Beginning of verse 31. You know what? Listen to this. Listen to this as though St. Paul were writing it to you about you. He's writing it to you about God, about your relationship with God. This is what God says. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life and is the right hand of God and is also interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I'm convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future or any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Isn't that powerful? Holy cow. Man, I just feel the weight of that in my own heart. That's God's attitude towards you. That's his opinion about you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't say there was a little bit of condemnation. He didn't say there was some condemnation. He said there's none. Jesus himself said that he did not, the Father did not send him to condemn the world, but to rescue it. Listen to me, God loves you. God loves you. He's for you. He does not condemn you. He does not charge you. His love for you, according to St. Paul's words in chapter 8 of his letter to Romans, his love for you is absolutely inseparable. And there's no power that exists anywhere that can separate you from his love. That's good news. Then why? If that's the case, why? Why do we have this notion, this image of God as the angry judge, eager to condemn I mean, biblically, we have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as well as that of the great apostle, St. Paul, stating plainly that condemnation is not God's plan, not his purpose, and not his design. So why? Why do we have this mindset? Why does that seem to be the default mindset in many in the world today, including Christians? Well, I have a theory about this. I'm glad you asked the question. <laughs> There's probably lots of reasons for it. Let me, let me point out what I think are two significant reasons. Two reasons for this underlining mindset of condemnation. Number one is what, what I refer to as the, the father wound. And number two is ambition. So let me talk about that a little bit. The father wound. There could be more but than the father wound or ambition, but I see those two. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them unequivocally. God created us in his image. And I think the problem is this, is that mankind has now turned around and we've made God in our image. We, have, we each have an image of what God looks like. And all too often, the image that we have of God, especially God the Father, is that it looks a whole lot like our earthly fathers. Good or bad. So, let me ask a question. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you had an earthly father who was incredibly loving, who was kind, who was present, who was wise, who was accessible? How many of you guys, that's, when you think about your earthly father, that's your experience? Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing. I've asked that question in, in conferences and settings before, 
and the percentages are usually the same. There's a spattering of a few hands that go up where they've had a really good relationship with their dads. Sadly, the overwhelming majority, probably 90% or more of the people that are here today, hands didn't go up. We haven't had a good experience. The very first image of fatherhood that we've experienced, and the only frame reference, the only box that's been constructed in our psyche for God as Father has been our earthly fathers, and for way too many of us, he hasn't been the, the most loving man we've ever known. He hasn't been the kindest or the, the most wise and accessible and present person for us. We've been wounded. So many of us have been wounded by our earthly fathers in one way or another. And I believe that that wound has tainted our image of God as Father. These wounds create filters. These filters distort our understanding of God, our understanding of His nature and of His heart toward us. Listen to me. Please listen to me. Our Heavenly Father is not like our earthly father. Our heavenly father is not like our earthly fathers. He's so much better. Even if, you, even if you're one of the few who raised your hand say, and you had an amazing earthly father, or maybe God graciously sent some other man your way to help fill those voids and gaps, even the best image of what we can imagine an earthly father to be, our heavenly father far outstretches. He far outreaches even the, even the best possible example of what a father could be. We need a new vision of our earthly father. We need a vision of our heavenly father that better reflects Jesus' testimony about the father and better reflects St. Paul's testimony about the father. Remember, Jesus said this. He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus said that. So if we have a, a concept of what God as Father is that looks anything other than Jesus, then we need to change our, our mindset about who God the Father is. I know, it sounds biblical to me. I want to have a better understanding of God as Father that better reflects Jesus' testimony about him, that better reflects St. Paul's testimony about him. Now, if just mentioning this has stirred up the, you know, the issue of, of the father wound with some of you, um, we'll pray at the end of the service. But I want to recommend the book. I, I've done a good amount of reading on this. Probably the best book I've read to date that, that speaks concerning the father wound is John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. It's been out for a while. It's a powerful book. I know the book is geared toward men, but most of the women that I've recommended the book to, they've so enjoyed it. They've so so valued it. So if I'm hitting close to home for you today, you might consider picking up a, a copy of that. I highly recommend it. So the first thing, why we have this concept of a condemning God, though scripture clearly states otherwise. Well, one is the father wound. We had an angry earthly father, so we think we have an angry heavenly father. The other is this. I could probably say it a, a few different ways, but I'll sum it up in this. It's ambition. It's ambition. James chapter 3, verse 16 in the New American Standard says this. It says, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there disorder 
There is disorder in every evil thing. Let's see if I can say that better. <laughs> For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Every evil thing? Every evil thing? Seriously? Every evil thing? Wow. Where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, every evil thing exists. I don't want to have any open door, any entryway into my world that allows access to every evil thing. So what am I talking about here? Well, I'm talking about another form of, of father, spiritual father. So I'm talking about a people group that I can speak about with great authority. I'm talking about pastors. Why do we have this mindset as God is condemning? I think a huge bit of responsibility has to be put at the footstep, at the doorstep of pastors. I've been a pastor a long time. I've been pastored. Sometimes I've been pastored very well by some amazing men. Sometimes not so well. Maybe that's been some of your experience too. I've known many, many pastors over the years. I've known some that are outstanding men of God. Just outstanding. Truly good shepherds who love the sheep that have been entrusted to their care. But then I've known some other pastors. And these are men who are insecure, territorial, broken men competitive, fiercely ambitious. These are broken men who are desperately seeking validation, the validation they more than likely never received from their earthly father. And they're seeking that validation from their heavenly father or from some other resource. They've been impacted and they're driven by a Western worldview mindset that says bigger is better. You take the combination of those two things, someone who's ambitious and broken, territorial, competitive, you match that with the very worst aspects of capitalism, apply it to a church setting, and this is what happens inside of these men. If I can just get my church to grow, then daddy will love me. If I can just increase the budget, if I can increase my staff, then daddy will love me. If I can just get a bigger building, I know, then daddy will love me. I'm being brutally honest today, right? I could just be on TV or publish my book or preach around, whatever it is. Then maybe, just maybe, my Heavenly Father will be pleased with me. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. It's a lose-lose situation. So, now I'm talking about the church and why we have this tainted image of who God the Father is and why we don't see what the Scripture says about Him. We think He is in the business of condemning us. When Scripture paints a very different picture. Why? Well, if you take men with these pastors, these church leaders, with a combination of brokenness and ambition, they deceive themselves into believing that the end justifies the means. 
that I can do whatever it takes to accomplish my goal, my plan, my dream, my mission, my vision. That's the oh, I love the word vision. I just, you know, you got to serve my vision, brother. You got to help me build a thing that God's put in my heart to do. And they're so driven by ambition, and they're so broken from their fathers that they think anything is acceptable to get me from this place to that place. So, the result is this. Things like condemnation, shame, guilt, manipulation, coercion, they're on the table. They're willing to do whatever it takes. You know, it's a whole lot easier to control a group of people with fear than with freedom. If I intimidate you, if I manipulate you, if I use things like guilt and shame as a weapon, I can get people to do stuff. Now, a long time ago, a long time ago, I decided I'm not going to do it. I'd rather not do it. I'd rather have nothing happen if that's what it's going to take to get there. I just gave up on that a long time ago. How how much self disclosure? <laughs> I just in for a penny and for a pound, right? My mother was one of the most loving people I ever knew. Unfortunately, she died when she was forty nine. She had a first heart attack when she was twenty nine. So most of my life, she was a very sick person. And like any typical New York Italian mama, man, she could wield manipulation and shame and guilt. Like with, you know, Olympic expertise. You know? <laughs> and as the oldest son, you know, you know, target. I was the first one she got to practice on. And so, somewhere along the line, this disdain for manipulation was established in me. I've got no, I got no tolerance for it, and I feel like I can sniff out manipulation about half a mile away. I really want nothing to do with it. Love you, Ma. <laughs> but I think that's where it began for me. But if you take a broken person who believes that the ends justify the means, and if they see God like their angry earthly father, then of course it's okay to condemn people because that's how God treats me. It's okay to use shame because that's how God treats me, or manipulation or coercion. And after all, I'm doing it for a good purpose. I want the church to grow. Right? And so we use it to get money out of people, to get people to show up for our programs, or to get your friends to come to church. Now, I don't, probably none of you guys have ever experienced that from church, but I'm glad if that's the case. But you would be the exception. Give to my church. Participate in my program. Sacrifice your time. Serve my vision. Otherwise, God's not happy with you. Man, that just stinks. I hate that stuff. So the heaven, so our spiritual fathers, just like our earthly fathers, our spiritual fathers changed our image of God as well. They foster a performance-based Christianity where condemnation is the order of the day. Why do we have a poor image of God? Why do we see him other than he actually is? It's the father wound from our earthly fathers and it's Ambition from spiritual fathers. Things got to change. Years ago, God gave me a vision 
I was, I was in this auditorium. I was kind of like looking down at this auditorium from above, and it was filled with pastors, just packed out, and I knew most of the guys. And the Lord was next to me, and this is what he said to me, pointing to all these pastors in this packed auditorium. He said, they don't need another teacher. He said, they don't need another prophet. He said, all of them need to be fathered. Oh, it just broke my heart. Guys, pray for your pastors. We really need it. There's a lot of warfare in what we do, and we're just people. We're about as broken as anybody else, doing the best we can with what we got. I'm trying to paint a picture. Why do we see God as condemning? Because of the actions of our earthly fathers and our spiritual fathers. They've distorted our image of God, our heavenly father. Now, I believe that God's called me, Tom Zawaki, I believe that he's called me to do, specifically to do three things. And they all apply to this. I believe he's told me to tell people good news, that the father loves them lavishly and extravagantly. I believe he's called me to open blind spiritual eyes so people could see and know the truth. And I believe he's called me to set captives free, specifically to set people free from the bondage of religious rules or regulations and the traditions of men. Changing our understanding of God from a, a condemning God to a loving God, it's just part of it. It just fits my calling really well. That's why I have passion for this today. We have some energy for this. Jesus came to rescue, not to condemn. See, mankind is sick. We have a deadly cancer in our souls called sin. And Jesus came to take the treatment for our sickness in his own bodies. He took our place. He endured the treatment that we never would have survived. He endured the spiritual chemotherapy, as it were, required to eradicate the cancer of sin from our beings. That's substitutionary atonement. <laughs> the wrath of God is against our sin. The wrath of God is not directed at us. It's directed at the sin in us. The wrath of God is attacking the sin that's attacking the objects of his divine affection, us. It may seem like a subtle difference to you, but it's profound. God's wrath is never directed at his sons and his daughters. His wrath is not directed at his children. His wrath is directed at the sin in us. When I had cancer, Nadine hated the cancer with a fiery passion. She wanted to kill it, but she loved me. Her wrath was directed at the cancer, not at her husband. God's wrath is in no way directed at you. Rather, it is the powerful treatment created to eradicate the sin within you. God's wrath is his passionate love, his passionate love for you and against the sin in you. Imagine, if you would, that someone tried to attack one of your children. What would you do? You would do whatever it took, right? It would, it would rise up. You can even feel it rise up in you now. You have to go through me. Somebody broke in my house, Nadine, when the kids were home. You want to get to my wife and kids? One of us would be dead at the end of our encounter. 
If that's what it took to prevent him from hurting Nadine and the kids, he would have to go through me. Period. I don't have. I don't apologize that for a second. My wrath would be directed at him. It would be directed at the intruder, at the violator, at the thief, at the criminal. My wrath's not directed at my wife or my children. I would use everything I could to eradicate that criminal from my house. That's my passionate love for my wife and my kids. That's a wonderful, excellent, accurate definition of the wrath of God. It's his passionate love for you and against the sin in you. The only people who experience condemnation, they fall into one of two categories. Those people who reject Jesus' offer to take the spiritual chemo in their place, or those people who try to do it on their own. Only two groups of people that experience the condemnation of God. Those people who reject Jesus' offer to take the spiritual chemo in their place, or those people who try to do it on their own. The first is called rebellion, the second is called religion. God sends no one to hell. He sends no one to hell. He sends no one to hell. He invites us to himself. The choice is ours. Those who choose independence from God are left with the consequences of their choice. Those who accept his invitation enter into a love relationship of freedom and trust. So with all that as a background, let me now read verse 18 to you. Whoever believes in him, this is again Jesus speaking, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Isn't that what I just said? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, three times the word believe here is used in this one verse. And again, as we've seen in past weeks, it comes from that very same Greek root word, pistis, which means trust. I've explained that to you in a variety of different ways. Let me do it yet one more way today. And we'll do it from two different translations. That same verse 18 from the Amplified Bible says it this way. He who believes in him clings to, trusts in relies on him, is not judged. He who trusts in him never comes up for judgment. For there is no rejection, no condemnation. He incurs no damnation. But he who does not believe, cling to, rely on, trust in him, is judged already. He has already been convicted and has already received his sentence because he has not believed in and trusted in the name of the Holy Begotten Son of God. He is condemned, why? For refusing to let his trust rest in Christ's name. Can you see that believing means trust? I've been trying to, I've been driving that point home for weeks now, a lot of different ways. When you read in the New Testament the words trust or the words believe, more often than not, almost always, you can insert the word trust and get a fuller understanding of the text. Listen to the way the message takes that same verse 18 from John chapter 3. It says, anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe 
in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. Guys, it's about trust. It's all about trust. Our entire journey here on earth is about developing trust in the God who's rich in mercy, as it says in Ephesians 2.4, and who loves us with a great and lavish love, as it says in 1 John 3.1. We live in a fallen world. We live constantly with the consequences of poor choices all around us. Sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes we, we've done nothing wrong ourselves. We're just the collateral damage of somebody else's poor choice. Is there anyone in this room who hasn't been the collateral damage of somebody else doing something foolish and stupid? You're driving down the road. You've got the green light. You're on the right side. You're driving the speed limit. There's enough space between you and the guy in front of you, and somebody comes, runs a red light, and T-bones you. You did nothing wrong. Your collateral damage of their poor choice. They ran the red light. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes we live with the consequences of somebody else's poor choice. And sometimes we're simply reaping the damage that we ourselves have sown into our own lives because of our own poor choices. And sometimes there are ripple effects. All the poor choices of just the people in this room, the ripple effects go out. And sometimes my poor choices clash with your poor choices. And damage is done. How do I say Another way of saying this. We'll have trouble in this life. Jesus said it. The second half of John 16, 33. Jesus clearly states, in this world you will have trouble. But he ends the verse with these words. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I wish I could tell you today, give your heart to Jesus and all your troubles go away. But that would be a lie. <laughs> and most of you would know that. We will have trouble in life. So how do we deal with it? Well, some of us have dealt with it by thinking, well, God just hates me. Or God's angry at me. Or I've failed him. And it all fits nicely into that category of a condemning, angry God who's the judge who's ready to condemn, who's ready to exact judgment. I think there's a better way of looking at it. And it has to do with trust. It's, it's the point being made in verse 18. I've shared this with you before. Today's a good day to share it again. My two undeniable truths in the universe. Number one is this. God is good. Number two is God loves me. Everything else, everything else begins at number three. Number one, God is good. Number two, God loves me. Everything else begins at number three. Believing that he's good, believing that he loves me, believing that he has a plan for my life, and it's a good plan. Believing that my circumstances don't define me. That's trusting God. I'm on that journey. I haven't arrived yet. But this is the place where I'm at. Now, I've, I've gone through hard stuff in life. You have too. But the journey I'm on is this. Rather than viewing my circumstances and trying to judge God by my circumstances, trying to weigh whether or not he's truly good, or weigh whether or not he actually loves me, I've turned it around. And this is trust. This is the way of faith for me. This is what believing is for Tom. I have settled in my heart, settled in my soul, these two facts that are unshakable, that God is good, 
settle. He does love me, settle. And in the light of that firmly established truth, I look at my circumstances in light of those truths. I look at my troubles. I look at my pain. I look at cancer, for God's sakes, in light of the fact that he is good. And he absolutely does love me. That's trust. That's a picture of trust. I'm convinced of God's goodness and his love. I choose not to judge him according to my circumstances. Instead, I choose to view my circumstances in light of his well-established goodness and love for me. Now, I'll tell you, for me, this journey hasn't been a straight line. I wish I could tell I'm just, I've just been inclining, getting higher and higher all the way. It looks a whole lot more like a roller coaster. I mean, up and down and back and forth. I got good days and bad days. But when I'm thinking clear, I still believe those two undeniable truths. I'm learning to trust him. I'm on the journey of learning to trust him. How about you? So let me say one more final word about trust and then we'll pray. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, maybe one of the best Old Testament verses concerning trust. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Easier said than done, right? Let's look at two key words here, trust and acknowledge. The Hebrew word trust used here is batash. There's more of a kind of sound at the end of batash, but I don't know. Even though I grew up in New York, I don't have the gene that lets me say that word <laughs> with greater Hebrew accuracy. Batash. And according to Strong's concordance, it means to have confidence, to make secure, to feel safe. That's a pretty good explanation of the word trust. Sounds about right to me. Now track with me for a minute. On our journey to establish trust, it has to begin at some point with a lack of trust. At some point, I don't feel confident. I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. And then something changes. And I do. In healthy relationships, trust is earned by good behavior multiplied over time. In other words, you get to know the person, and in knowing them, you decide if they're indeed trustworthy or not. This takes me to the second word, acknowledge. In, Hebrews, in Proverbs 3. The Hebrew word for acknowledged used here in Proverbs 3.6 is a wonderful Hebrew word called yada. And Strong's defines yada as to perceive and to see, to find out, to discern, to know by experience, to be acquainted with. And what it's referring to here is a very intimate knowing. The same word yada used here is also used in Genesis 4, chapter 1, when it says Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. Are you getting the picture? This is an intimate knowledge. This is a close, intimate, experiential knowing. Okay, so follow me. The, the, the way to batash is yada. The way to trust is intimate relationship. An intimate knowing. The journey to trust is knowing. The only possible way that we can realistically trust God, as the verse here in Proverbs 3 says, with all our hearts, 
especially when it conflicts with our own understanding or the circumstances of our life, is relationship. Nadine and I have been married for 32 years, right? Next month it'll be 36 years since we started dating. We've been together a long time. We know each other. I mean, every sometimes I'm sitting there, and she says, she just turns and looks at me and says, want some ice cream? I'm thinking, man, I was just thinking about, get out of my head, woman. That was a pretty safe bet. I'm probably always thinking about ice cream, but. <laughs> but she knows me, you know? And I'm looking at her and I say, what made you say that? She says, I don't know. I just, I just can't. We know each other. I trust her. She's loved me better than my mother ever loved me, this woman does. So we go through hard times. I know I can rely on her. Why do I know that? Because she's, she's proven herself trustworthy. I know her. And it's in that intimate knowing that I trust her. Our relationship with God is exactly the same. It's in knowing him that we discover how good he actually is, that how loving he actually is. And we make the decision in our hearts, I can trust him. He's trustworthy. The only possible way that we can realistically trust God with all our hearts, especially when it conflicts with our own understanding and circumstances, is relationships. Relationship. Before we can trust him, we need to know him. We need to know him personally. We need to know him intimately. We need to know him experientially. With all my heart, as your pastor, that's what I want for you. I want you to know God. I want you to know him intimately and experientially. Trusting God is in our future. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, somewhere down the road, you're going to need to trust him. Maybe that's the place where you're in right now. Maybe that's where you're at today, this morning. I'm here as a witness that this God I speak of is both very good and extremely loving. I trust him. And you can too. Let's stand and pray. Let me close our eyes. Maybe, maybe the things I shared today hit a little close to home. Maybe there's a father wound that you're dealing with. Maybe it's your earthly father. Maybe things weren't as good as you wish they had been. Maybe for you it's a spiritual father who brought wounds or failed you in one way or another. I just want to pray today that God will heal that wound. Sometimes we have ministry teams come up or we have people come up. So let's just do this as a group today. This is really just between you and God. And as, as your pastor, as your friend, as someone who gets the privilege of sitting in the role of spiritual father from time to time. I just speak blessing over you. I just speak a father's blessing. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would come now in all your goodness, that you would come now in all of your love. And I pray that you yourself, the perfect father, the one who doesn't condemn, the one who's completely whole, the one who is love personified. Lord, I pray for my friends today. Where there are gaps, where there are voids left by the fathers in their life. Lord, would you come and fill those gaps with yourself? 
Would you come and fill every gap, every void? Jesus, you said that you came to bind up broken hearts and to set captives free. Jesus, I ask that you would do what you said you would do here and now. Would you touch broken hearts? Bind up our broken hearts and set us free. Set captives free today, Lord. Lord, we're all on that journey, and it's a journey about trust, and we're in different places. Our future is only better. It can only be better if we have greater trust in you. And Lord, I don't know how we get from here to there on our own, but you do. Nothing's beyond you. You have all power. You have all authority. So I pray for us, Lord, each one individually. And Charlottetown Community Church as a group. Lead us on the path of trust. Lord, would you firmly establish in our hearts these truths that you are good and that you do love us and let them be so firmly set, so rooted in our hearts that no circumstance, no person would ever be able to shake that from us. Lord, I pray that we would know you for who you truly are. Lord, I pray that you would remove from us distorted, tainted images that have given us a false concept of who you actually are. Lord, I pray that we would know the truth, the truth about who you actually are and that it would set us free. Lord, I pray that we would have yada with you, that intimate knowing, and that the fruit of that intimate knowing would be trust. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So clean up today is different, guys.